Hey guys, if you're anything like me, you've probably grown pretty tired of winter. If you live anywhere close to where I do, you'll know that it seems like every week we're getting blasted by another winter storm. And today, on the first official day of spring in 2018, it's looking like we'll yet again be getting some significant snow. So, I figured I'd compile a few scary stories for you all to enjoy while stuck in the house due to inclement weather yet again. Thank you guys for all the love and support. And if you're new, consider subscribing for more creepy content. Hopefully, this will be the last snowstorm we have to deal with for a while. So, Winner, let's not meet. I'm Navajo, and boy, have I heard a lot of stories growing up on the reservation. While I've never actually seen anything myself, which I'm grateful for, I've benefited by being around the people who have. There is a different kind of evil that exists in the quiet high deserts and deep sandstone canyons of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. I can only describe it as an ancient evil. Now, there are helpful ceremonies, rituals, and traditions that are still practiced to this day. Hell, even a local hospital has an on-duty medicine man, but it seems to be a double-edged sword. What I mean is, there's also black magic which most Navajo will not even acknowledge or speak of. We are very superstitious and are heavy with taboos. You'll find this with most First Nation people. From Alaska to Argentina, it's just something you don't do, in fear that it will get the attention of unwanted spirits or harmful beings. Skinwalkers, or Naladushi, are just a few stories that kept me up at night with the covers over my head. Here's a quick one for you guys. A Navajo tribal police officer was driving west on what used to be officially named Highway 666. It was lightly snowing, maybe a quarter of an inch, which is a lot of snow for home. And he sees an old woman walking on the side of the road. How she got there, or where she was going, was not apparent, because she was so far out in the middle of nowhere. He didn't see her right away, but as he passes, he noticed she's dressed in traditional clothing. A shawl, dress, moccasins, and her hair in the traditional bun. Not too odd, many elders still choose to dress traditionally. But why was she out in such cold weather this late at night? Hitchhiking, maybe. He passed her too quickly and now has to turn around. And as he makes a U-turn, he notices that she's nowhere to be seen. This is fairly flat terrain, and he's sure he saw an old woman walking. He pulls the squad car over and steps out with a flashlight. Confused, he manages to find the woman's footprints in the shallow snow. He follows the footprints until they suddenly turn into what look like dog paw prints, leading away from the road in a hurry. He immediately jumps back into the squad car and meets up with another officer near his patrol. He's a little shaken up, but asks the other officer if he's ever seen anything like that. The officer tells him that he has. He also explains that sometimes it's an old woman, sometimes a very beautiful young girl, but always on that road and always in the snow, waiting for the right good Samaritan to let her into their car. I still get nervous driving those wide open spaces at night, and I keep my eyes strictly on the road and turn my music up high. I rarely pick up hitchhikers, but I never pick them up at night. At our department, 
we had fairly strict policies regarding how we handled 911 calls that were either misdials or dead air. We always sent two officers out to the address to ascertain why and how the call was made. Our state had a database of this information and put out statistics every year. Additionally, it was a fairly useful deterrent against the kids who love prank calling and the old folks who called dispatch just to have someone to talk to. We were a fairly small county. This particular case involved some fairly strange 911 calls in a newer subdivision in our county. Shortly after I began working as a deputy in early 2001, real estate developers began to build expensive housing in a newly cut subdivision that ran against one of the larger creeks in our county. Seemingly overnight, a huge wooded area turned into 800k plus housing. At night, myself and another deputy would go on foot patrol through the new subdivision. It was a way to kill time on slow nights, and another way to fulfill our curiosity about how big these houses really were. However, there was one larger, Victorian-style two-story house that overlooked the river that we typically did a quick patrol through and got the hell out of there. I could never put my finger on it, but I always had a feeling of uneasiness whenever we walked on the property and through the home as it was under construction. The other deputy, a good friend of mine, always told me that the shadows were watching him when we walked through that house. We jokingly called the house Marilyn Manson's crib. We never felt weird in any other location inside the subdivision. Months passed, and most of the subdivision was complete by early summer. People began to move in, and all shifts at the sheriff's department began to patrol the area. However, the house that I felt strange in had seemingly come to a construction standstill. From talking to the general contractor, the real estate company had three potential buyers for the home, but they all backed out for various reasons. Now, this wasn't uncommon due to the high prices and uncertainty over property taxes, but something in my mind just didn't add up. After speaking to some of the subcontractors involved, it seemed like the potential buyers toured the property and noped out of the deal as quick as possible. Around December 2001, a buyer was finally found for the house, but the closing had to be delayed to finalize some utility issues. About two weeks before the new owners closed on the home, our dispatch received a 911 call from the home with dead air. I was on shift that night and took lead while another deputy headed my way. I went over to our secondary radio channel and began asking a ton of questions to our dispatcher about the nature of the call. All she could advise was she was getting dead air. The callback number was showing all sixes. 666-666. 6666, and the address was showing to be the creepy house in the new subdivision. I found this quite odd, as the general contractor had sent our department the house numbering for this particular street a couple days before the call. I figured our dispatch supervisor had updated our 911 system to reflect these new addresses. When I rolled up on the house, it was completely dark. I stayed in my patrol vehicle and hit the house with my spotlight while I waited for backup to arrive. Nothing was found out of the ordinary, and no signs of vandalism were discovered. However, the entire time I was there, I felt a heaviness that I can only describe as someone pushing down on my shoulders and weighing me down. We closed the call out as unfounded. 
After we cleared, I let our patrol sergeant know what was going on. He felt that it was an error with the 911 system and stated we needed to inform the day shift dispatch supervisor. The next morning, I notified our dispatch supervisor about the error and was met with a perplexed look. She proceeded to tell me that this was impossible because the utility company had not run phone service to any of the houses in that part of the subdivision yet. Apparently, this was a utility issue that was preventing closing for the homeowners. She stated that she was waiting until the end of the week to update the 911 system to reflect the new addresses as it would be a waste of time to load in new addresses with no telephone service. Thus, the address could not have appeared in our computer-aided dispatch system. I believed our dispatch supervisor on her assessment. She had been with the county for 10 plus years, seen the 911 system designed and implemented, and generally did a very good job. So, I took her at her word, which unsettled me even more. Determined to get to the bottom of the issue, I passed it on to the day sergeant and asked if one of the deputies could follow up with the phone company if they were out working near that house. Later that evening, I found a note in my patrol box that stated, The phone company is working on the lines in a different part of the subdivision. They won't be working on that address until later this week. The phone company doesn't know what's causing the 911 issue. Maybe dispatch got the address wrong. That night, dispatch received another 911 call with dead air from the same house, a seemingly impossible address included. Once again, we responded and found nothing out of the ordinary. The deputy that responded with me that night told me afterward that he felt like he was being watched the entire time we checked the perimeter of the home. I still felt the heaviness when walking around. The next morning, the patrol sergeant and I both spoke with the dispatch supervisor and basically told her the impossible was occurring and we needed to get to the bottom of it. She pulled the records from the night before and... Sure enough, the impossible address was being sent from some unknown phone lines to our 911 system, which propagated out to the dispatch operator CAD and our in-car computers. By that evening, we all received an email from the dispatch supervisor stating that she had no idea how this was happening and believed it to be a glitch that she corrected in the 911 system. However, she added the new addresses anyway since the phone company was almost done working in the area. Basically, she had no clue what was causing the problem. We started getting nightly 911 calls to the house. Our patrol sergeant finally told dispatch that we wouldn't be responding until the buyers moved in. In some weird way, this made me feel much better. I absolutely hated responding to that house. The next week, on one of my nights off, I heard on my radio that the patrol sergeant on the differential shift told two deputies to get to the bottom of what was going on at that house. Apparently, he believed that kids were somehow tampering with the phone system and just trying to waste the county's time. Bored and somewhat curious, I called the patrol sergeant on his cell phone and asked if the 911 call came in with dead air like it had for us multiple times. He said that this particular call was downright creepy. Dispatch answered the call, and it sounded like someone was either gagged or the phone was completely muffled. Apparently, the person on the other end of the line sounded like they were in distress and sounded like they were talking at a rapid pace. Now, at this point, 
The new owner still had not moved into the house and, as far as I know, had not connected the phone service. Like all the other times before, the deputies got on scene, checked the perimeter and looked through the house to the best of their abilities, and found nothing. However, one of them mentioned feeling unusually cold when walking near the back of the property. I talked with him later, as this was fairly strange since he was the only one who felt it. And our average temperature at night in December hovers a little above 55 degrees. The deputy, who reported the coldness, was directed by the sergeant to park in front of the house for a couple of hours to look out for anything suspicious. Apparently, he lasted about another hour and a half before throwing up about six or seven times on the side of the road and then took off for the evening. I talked with him about this experience a couple of days later and he stated he felt fine after he left the area. However, he said the longer he was near the house, the sicker he felt. Anecdotal at best, but it still creeped me out. A few weeks passed. The new homeowners, a husband, wife, and two kids, moved in, stayed less than three months, and put the home on the market at a fairly substantial loss. We received numerous 911 calls from them, ranging from prowlers in the area to break-ins with the suspects still in the residence. Now, the calls were coming from the alarm company instead of the homeowners themselves. Apparently, they installed a fairly high-end security system with motion sensors that called the security company after the owners armed the system in the master bedroom before going to sleep. 8 out of 10 calls we received were for motion sensor activation alarms. I probably responded a total of 20 times in 3 months to the house. I think the alarm company was out there almost as many times, but could never find a defect in the system. The husband was continually traveling for business, leaving the wife and kids at home for the better part of the three months they lived there. The wife was absolutely convinced the house was haunted. Based on the contact I had with the wife, I tended to believe her. She was well-educated, very articulate, and her description of shadows moving scared the hell out of me as it was eerily similar to what my friend encountered. In fact, my deputy friend, who often responded to the calls with me, made it known to the wife that he saw something similar before the house's construction was complete. I still jokingly blame him for costing that family a ton of money after they got the hell out of there. Before the family moved, we encouraged them to get with the alarm company and install cameras that activated with the alarm system to see if they could record what was causing the motion sensors to activate and call the alarm company. However, they never did. I think the wife's persistence got to the husband, and he sold the house just to get her to stop talking about it. During the last month they were there, our sheriff felt it necessary to send an off-duty deputy to sit outside the residence on more than three occasions, just to ease the mind of the wife. Each time, a different deputy was sent, all of them reported feeling strange while on assignment, but no one reported seeing anything suspicious. Since the first family left, that house was owned by at least 12 different families since 2002, we kept getting 911 calls that were either from the alarm company or dead air for as long as I worked at the apartment. Most owners didn't stay more than a year and a half. I think most of them stayed there just long enough to sell the house at a reasonable price to the next poor, unsuspecting buyer.
I particularly felt bad for the family who got stuck with the house during the housing crisis of 2008. I can't stress how strange this is, as the majority of the original owners in the subdivision continue to live there, and we rarely got any calls from them. I worked as a camp counselor during my college summers, several years before stories of things like skinwalkers became culturally commonplace, certainly before I'd ever heard of one. In one year, we had a night hike activity with story stations. My station had me by myself, up on a cliff that overlooked the river, and about halfway through the hike. I was generally the furthest from the other staff at any given time, but because I was in charge of the nature programs, I knew those woods like the back of my hand. I wasn't frightened in the least. Unless there was recent rain, I could usually get to and from my station without a light. There was another activity where the kids would leave me blindfolded somewhere, and I would lead them back, still blindfolded. I knew those woods and those trails. The program staff and storytellers would get a notice to turn off our radios before the first group started the trail. After that, it was dead silence in the dark woods until the first group got there. Since I was fairly far through, it would usually be 15 or 20 minutes before the first group of kids came through. One night, I'm up there, waiting, at this steep cliff about two feet behind where I was sitting, and I hear this kid's voice, from what sounded like, ten feet behind me, saying my name, clear as day. Now, it might not seem all that strange to hear a kid say your name at a camp, even when you think you're alone, but it's important to note here that we use nicknames for safety reasons, and there was not a single child on the 200-acre camp property who actually knew my first name. The staff did, but they were all at least 50 yards away, and this was very much a child's voice. It was also coming from what should have been midair. It scared me so bad that I had to leave my station and set up closer to the next one so that I could at least talk to her in the darkness. Over the course of the summer, almost all the program staff had similar experiences on these night hikes until we finally scrapped the activity because nobody wanted to be out in the woods alone without radios anymore. This happened back while I was in college a couple years ago. Me and my roommate moved into a beautiful apartment our junior year of college. Our parents made it extremely clear that two small females living alone together was not ideal for some of the shadier neighborhoods close to our college. We attended a college in our state capital, so we were in a city environment and had certain criteria we had to meet in order for us to live there and for them to co-sign our leases. Lit sidewalks keyed entry into the apartment building, a lit parking lot, X amount of blocks from campus, etc. So, we finally found one that fit our parents' criteria. Our apartment building had a keyed entry for both the front of the building and the back gate that led to the fire escape. Our apartment was an end unit, so there was two deadbolt locks on it. We loved our apartment, we felt safe, we had fun, truly living the college experience. And then, 
and my roommate's boyfriend starts slowly moving his things into the apartment and staying there way more often than he should. I finally tell my roommate if he wants to stay here and use the water, electric, and food I help pay for, then he needs to pay for it too, including our rent. I tell her a three-way split, or I'm paying only my rent, and he can pay the entire electric, water, and trash bill. I think I'm being pretty fair, and even though her boyfriend doesn't have a job, that's not my problem. I work and go to college. Your, I don't want to work at McDonald's. Yes, he actually said that. Excuse is completely garbage. If you want a place to stay, then to the Golden Arches you should go. So, instead, my roommate starts sneaking him in really late at night after I go to sleep, and he leaves on the days I'm home. While I'm in class, he's there, then he leaves before I come back. My schedule is extremely routine. Well, he can't have a key, so if my roommate is in class or at work, how's he getting in? He can't take my roommate's key because if he decides to leave halfway through the day, how will she get her key back? All good questions. The solution they come up with is to leave the back door unlocked that leads to the fire escape, and then he can jump the fence at the bottom to get back on the fire escape when he's ready to come back, or stick a rock in between the door, whatever works for him. So, I'm off work and school one Thursday morning, and I decide I'm going to sleep in as long as I possibly can. My roommate and her boyfriend have already left for the day, so, naturally, they leave the door unlocked. I'm asleep like a pretty princess. It's about 10 in the morning, and when I hear the back door open to the apartment, I come to, just enough to recognize the noise, realize it's my roommate or her boyfriend, and brush it off and go try to drift back off. All of a sudden, I start hearing someone creep through the apartment. It definitely doesn't sound like casual walking. It is clearly someone stepping slowly and quietly through the apartment. The door to my room is ajar just a sliver, but I don't see anything out the door, and I'm honestly too tired to get up and look. A couple minutes pass, and I figure that my roommate, aunt, or her boyfriend are just being weirdos, and I fall back to sleep. I can't be sure how much time passes before I open my eyes, but it can't be too long. I wake up to my door opening. My back is to the door, and I'm facing the opposing wall. I slowly start to turn over to see why my roommate or her boyfriend would dare wake me from my slumber. And there he is. A burglar. In my room next to the bed I'm currently lying in, a six-foot-tall, 250-pound minimum burglar, unplugging my TV, about five feet from where I am. I immediately pretend I'm just shifting positions in my sleep and continue to roll over with my eyes as shut as I can make them seem, still open enough to watch what was going on. He hears me shuffling as I turn over, stops, looks dead at me, and luckily, and doesn't realize that my eyes are open just a tiny bit. He goes back to unplugging my TV and my DVD player and shoves it into a bag he's brought and steals my change jar and casually starts walking out the front door to my apartment like he came in for a cup of fucking tea or something. After I hear the door shut, I immediately spring out of bed, 
grab my phone and start dialing 911, all while locking the back and front doors. The dispatcher is trying to calm me down, and at this point, I'm hysterical. I can't even catch my breath to tell her okay. Luckily, I told her my address before I started hyperventilating. I want to take a second to commend the police department, both city and college, because they were there in less than three minutes. She tells me the cops are there, but they need me to go downstairs to let them in the building because they don't have a key to the front of the building. I'm so afraid to open the door to my apartment or even look down the hallway. I'm about to walk to the front door and extend my arm out to the handle when I hear, Ma'am, it's the police. As if I weren't scared enough already. They yell through the door. I'm paranoid because the dispatcher just told me they couldn't get in and didn't realize that someone probably let them in downstairs. I asked the dispatcher to confirm that the people at my door are actually police officers. She tells me that they are. I open the front door and I collapse right there. My legs completely turn into jello and I just hit the floor. I blacked out for a brief period of time, but they held me up and sent me down on the couch. There's at least 10 officers in my apartment from both the city and college departments. When I look outside the living room window to the street below, there are five or six cop cars blocking the street. I later found out they were doing a perimeter search around the immediate area. I'm being bombarded questions now. I have to try to find out what's missing besides the stuff in my room. I'm crying. I'm shaking. This is not at all how I saw my day off going. I tell them my roommate left the back door open for her boyfriend, and they go and inspect the back door. The next thing I know, my roommate and her boyfriend walk in, and they both have the most dumbfounded looks on both of their faces. At this point, there's a detective talking to me, and I'm giving my statement, giving a description of the burglar, the stuff missing, looking at mugshots, etc. I immediately stop talking to the detective, look up at the both of them, and blurt out, Someone robbed us while I was asleep. He came into my room. My roommate looks me dead in the face and says, Oh my god, is any of my stuff gone? That's what you're asking me right now? If your replaceable shit is missing? What a bitch. Two officers take her and her boyfriend aside and talk to them while I'm finishing up with the detective. I call my boyfriend and he comes over to help me pack my stuff to stay over at his house for a couple of days, which turned into staying until my lease at the place ended around four months. After failing to recognize any suspects in the lineup, the cops slowly start leaving. After they all leave, I call my parents to tell them what happened gather my things, and head over to my boyfriend's house. My roommate and her boyfriend never once apologized. Not for leaving the door unlocked. Not just a general, I'm sorry this happened to you. They never asked me if I was okay, if I wanted to talk, anything. The day my lease ended was the best day of that entire year. I couldn't wait to get away from my roommate, her boyfriend in that apartment, they never found the guy who robbed me. I didn't even care about the materialistic things. 
he robbed me of my safety and security, and it took a good amount of counseling to get that back. I'm also thankful that he didn't try to attack me that morning. My friendship with my roommate was tarnished. I haven't spoken to her since. To this day, I don't sleep with my back to the door, and I always have a knife under my mattress. I was in medic school, finishing up some ride-alongs in a big city in Oklahoma. So, we get this call at around midnight to a county address outside the city. It was a pretty vague dispatch, but possibly a fight of some sort. We start heading out there and find out as we're going along that it is way outside of town. It was one of those calls that, by the time we realize it's out of our coverage area, it just isn't worth turning around and letting someone else deal with it, so we kept going. So we're driving, and eventually are up in the hills on dirt roads, pretty much just driving around, with no real way of figuring out where our patient is. We haven't seen any houses, or cars, or people, and when we come around a corner, and there is just some ancient-looking dude in the middle of the road, he doesn't flinch, even though we almost hit him, and just points further down the road, without saying anything. Well, we asked him if he called, and what's going on. Definitely weird, but whatever. So, we continue down the road, and eventually, we drive into this meadow surrounded by trees. And in the headlights, we can see this lady in the middle of the meadow, just standing there. The meadow isn't huge, but our scene lights really don't light up the edges. So we pull up and start doing our thing. She's a little bloody, but... Really, it seems to be more psyched than anything. And she's really not doing much to help us figure out what's going on. After about five minutes, a county deputy pulls into the meadow and gets out and comes over to us. He seems really nervous and keeps looking around, which seemed really weird, and puts all of us a little more on edge. Another minute or two passes, and we all notice that it's gotten really quiet. Now, this is Oklahoma, in the middle of the woods in summer. The bugs had been making a huge racket. Now, just silence. All the hairs stand up on our necks, and one of the guys I was working with pulls out a gigantic spotlight from the truck and scans the tree line. My blood runs completely cold. There were about 20 guys with rifles, standing around the edge of the meadow, just watching us from the darkness. They weren't pointing them at us, but talk about sphincter tone going from zero to a hundred in no time flat. We all are kind of just frozen, but after what seemed like ten minutes, the deputy breaks the silence by simply saying, Yeah, we should go. So we did. We climbed into the ambulance, dragged the patient with us, and booked it out of there. People from urban areas, or even small towns, don't realize it, but there are definitely hill people still out there who live completely separate from society. My husband is a military man. We got married during his two weeks of leave before tech school and his deployment to South Korea. We had a short engagement but I made the most out of our forced separation 
and did all the wedding planning in a matter of three months. It was a nice outdoor ceremony in the spring, at a park we had spent a lot of time at when we were dating. A pair of sandhill cranes showed up for the ceremony. It was quite lovely. The reception was a fun little affair, and before I knew it, we were all to our pre-honeymoon hotel. We were putting off an actual honeymoon until after his deployment. I would, after all, have a full year to plan it out. The motel had been provided by his stepsister. She worked for the chain and had gotten us quite a discount. I was less than impressed when we arrived, however, as it was directly next to a pretty scummy strip joint on a county highway. The elevator to the room had mysterious puddles on the scuffed laminate tile, and the railing on the second floor outdoor hallway was bent, probably from too many drunken bodies stumbling against it. The door window faced the strip club, the neon lights stretched fully around the top of the neighboring building, and it cast a red glow through the curtains. There was a very large mirror taking up the wall across from the window, with the bed sandwiched between. Nothing would kill my post-wedding glow. I was ecstatic to be alone with my husband. The night passed as you'd expect, and in the morning, my husband had to go to work at his recruiter's office. That work is what gave him two weeks of leave instead of only a few days, so it was a necessary evil. I whiled away the morning, running the TV in the background, as I opened cards and counted monetary gifts from all our friends and relatives. I squirreled it away in a little zippered pouch, an unused makeup bag in case I needed to touch up at the reception. Sometime in the early afternoon, the hotel phone rang. I hadn't thought to tell any of our friends or family exactly where we were staying, as my husband had arranged for the room with his stepsister, so I was a little surprised. I thought perhaps someone who was unable to attend and didn't have my cell number had called the lobby looking for us to give us their well wishes. I picked up the dingy yellow phone out of its cradle. Hello? Hey, baby. An unfamiliar male voice filtered through the static. What are you doing all alone today? Um, I'm sorry, who is this? I answered, unsure if it was a joke. I could come up there and we could have a good time, he crooned. I went to the window and closed the gap in the curtains, stretching the receiver cord over the bed as far as it would go. Uh, what? I couldn't be clever. I was too unnerved. Yeah, baby. Let me up there, and I'll give you a free facial. His tone had become rougher, less suave. Um, no, sorry, I don't think- Oh, come on, honey. We could have a good time together. No, no thank you. Click. I quickly deadbolted the door, took the phone cable out of the wall, turned off the television, put our monetary gifts and my ring in the safe, unplugged the bedside lamp, and took it into the empty bathtub, where I spent the rest of the afternoon in total discomfort. I made my husband call my cell phone to prove it was him outside, before I let him in the room that evening. I never knew who the man was, or how he'd gotten the room phone number, nor how he knew I was alone. He didn't call again, and we were able to switch our reservation to another hotel in the chain. That one, thankfully, was not next to a strip club creepy free facial guy let's not meet
I use Tinder pretty frequently, and it's usually cool. Just meeting people, chilling, smoking with most of them. So I matched with this dude named Charlie, and he seems cool. He's really cute, and he plays music, which is really appealing to me, as I also sing and play piano. We talk for a little while, and I agree to meet him at his house. Mistake number one. Why did I think it was a good idea to meet a stranger in their own home? I don't drive, so I take an Uber over, and it's a decent way away, so it's kind of pricey. When he buzzes me into the apartment complex, I get this really creepy vibe, but I shook it off his nerves. I go up to the third floor, and he's standing at the door. Things are cool, we're just chilling. We smoked a couple of bowls and we're watching a movie. So, he makes a move on me, and I go with it. We end up on the bed, and we're obviously engaging in adult activities, when, out of nowhere, he wraps his hands around my neck. Hard. Now, that's all fine and good with me. I mean, I can dig that in the right setting. But, alone in a stranger's house, when he didn't even check to see if it was cool, is not one of those settings. So, I literally can't breathe, and I'm fairly certain I'm turning blue at this point. And he is just relentless. Not only is he asphyxiating me, he's now yelling in my face, Are you scared? With this wild look in his eyes. And I'm like, fuck yes, I'm scared. You're trying to kill me right now. I started to struggle, and he was gripping even harder. I'm not even kidding you guys. I seriously thought I was going to die. By some miracle... I wriggle out of his grasp and start screaming. He's yelling at me to calm down, and I'm frantically trying to put my clothes on. He grabs my wrist as I'm trying to leave, and I use all my strength to pull away and slam the door. As it was closing, the charming fella bid me adieu, with the words, Fucking cunt. I get home, and I look in the mirror, and I have hella bruises on my neck. I try to cover it up with makeup to no avail. I straight up look like I was almost strangled to death. Then he texts me, saying, I think you need more than one dick. And I'm like, oh really? You want to bring a friend and kill me together? <laughs> How lovely. Anyways, I blocked him and reported him on Tinder. I wish I could have done more, because I seriously think he would have killed me. I've been debating going to the police, but the bruises are gone, and it's a he said, she said thing. But I'm really starting to wonder if I should, because... The next girl might not be so lucky. A zero out of ten would not attempted murder again. Crazy Strangler Tinder Dude, let's not meet. This happened when I was in college. I lived in Ala Vista, the student community at UCSB, notorious for being a party school. It fully lived up to his reputation. I like to party, but holy shit, these people were off the wall. As such, there were a lot of people who put themselves in dangerous situations, drinking to excess, not being careful, not locking doors, etc. It had a very isolated and insular vibe, and anyone who was hanging around who wasn't college-aged immediately looked out of place and strange. One night, after having a few drinks, I came home to my small house where I lived with two other girls, probably around 2.30am. We were all serious students, I was probably the least serious actually, 
and when we partied, it was not your typical UCSB Mega Rager, more like a small get-together with friends. We would often have a few people spend the night, asleep on our furniture, or in our beds as the case may be. That night, my roommates had a few people over who I didn't know, and I saw when I returned home that one of them had opted to sleep on the couch from the shadow that I saw there. I didn't turn on the light, so I wouldn't wake anyone up. But as I was passing the couch to enter my bedroom, I noticed that the figure was lying very stiff. He just had this weird energy to him. He was lying down, but it was like he was putting all of his energy into lying as still and rigid as possible. I paused, and the guy quickly jerked his head to face me without moving his limbs so quickly that it startled me. I could see his wide open eyes glinting in the dark. Figuring that I'd startled him, or that he was drunk, or maybe on some kind of stimulant unable to sleep, I just hurried past into my bedroom and locked the door. The dude made me nervous, and I wasn't taking any chances. I soon fell asleep. At 4.30am, I woke up. There was a strange sound at the door, almost like somebody was drumming their fingers against the wood, very quietly. I lay still and listened. There were more quiet sounds, like someone scratching the door with their fingers, which got louder and louder, until it was clear that he was using both hands and scratching as fast and as hard as possible. It created an extremely loud and intimidating sound that filled me with fear. I got my cell phone and texted my roommate because I was afraid to make a sound. Your friend is freaking me out. Is he coked up? Can you talk to him? He's banging and scratching on my door. She didn't text me back, probably because she was asleep. I texted my other roommate to the same effect, covering all my bases. Keep in mind that the scratching has been going on at this point for a couple of minutes. I have no idea how he could have sustained it. Scratching a wooden door with your fingernails can't feel good. He also grabbed at the knob and jiggled it super forcefully. Because neither of them answered, I decided to call and really wake them up, though I was scared to make a sound. I know it sounds stupid, but there was something seriously horrifying about being teased like this through the door. I knew that he was trying to terrify me. I felt like a little kid, but I could tell this guy was fucked up on something, and maybe the police needed to be called and I wanted to loop my roommates in since it was one of their friends. The scratching stopped abruptly, and I called my roommate, who answered sleepily. Yo, your friend is messed up. Can you please deal with it? Do we need to call the cops? He's seriously scaring me. He was scratching at my bedroom door. <sighs> really fucking weird. She didn't say anything for several seconds, and when she did speak, her voice had no sleepiness in it at all. What friend, she said. That fucking guy that was sleeping on the couch, I said. She was quiet again. We didn't have any guys over, she said. Call the police. My adrenaline surged, and I told her to please lock the bedroom door as quickly as possible. I realized that I hadn't heard scratching in a while, and I had no clue where the dude had gone. Suddenly... I heard a loud banging at the other end of the house, 
where my roommates, Lauren and Monica, shared a bedroom. The bangs were followed by the sound of them screaming in fear. I quickly dialed the police, as this maniac proceeded to bang against the luckily locked bedroom door of my two roommates as they screamed. The heaviness of the blows left no doubt that he was actually trying to break the door down. I told her not one operator of the situation, and she dispatched two squad cars. The police in Isla Vista are generally used to peeling drugs off the sidewalk and breaking up rolling frat bros. This was really serious and strange, and I think the dispatcher got the sense from my tone how terrified I was, and she stayed on the phone with me. At one point, the banging stopped, and everything was quiet for a while. I talked with the dispatcher and suddenly looked down to see that this guy had slipped his fingers through the one-inch gap between the door and the floor and was just kind of wiggling them around, making this weird growling sound. I screamed and backed away, which is my biggest regret about the situation, since when I look back, it would have been so awesome to just stomp the shit out of those fingers and hear the guy howl in pain. When the cops rolled up, I heard running and the sound of our sliding glass door opening and closing. And then he was gone. The cops never caught him. He had broken in through our side door by jimmying the lock somehow. My door was covered in what turned out to be huge gashes he'd made using a pair of scissors, which he discarded on the ground before he left. What terrifies me most about this was that I walked right past him. I looked him right in the face. I realize now that he was not trying to sleep or on drugs, but was lying so stiff like that because he was hiding. He probably heard me open the door and freaked out because he hadn't realized there was another girl living there and tried to blend into the couch in the darkness. When I was about 18, me and some friends took a road trip, about 7 hours or so, down to the Apalachicola National Forest near Tallahassee, Florida. We were going to do a little car camping, drink a few ice cold natty lights, you know, 18 year old stuff. As such, we didn't want to be bothered by any park rangers, so we drove way deep into the woods. When we got there, set up camp, had sat natty lights, and a buddy and I decided to do a little exploring. So we walked about 100 yards from our site back to the main road, saw another path directly across from us, and started walking it. Immediately, we started seeing signs that someone had lived there for a while. Big bags of trash, stuff like that. It should have been a huge red flag to turn around. But, you know, 18. And nothing could hurt us. So... We get to this campsite, and an older white guy, living out of his van. Clothesline strung up, coolers placed all around, and a big gorgeous dog. I think maybe a golden retriever. And we try to back out, but he sees us and starts talking. He's friendly enough, asks us where we're from, tells us about some cool spots to check out in the park. We end up chatting for ten minutes and going on our way. I kept thinking to myself how odd it was that he gave directions and steps, not yards or miles. A guy always seemed to be off balance, not stumbling drunk, but like he was walking on a balance beam, swaying side to side. Oh, 
and he was super excited to talk about national parks and forests where we were from. Okay, so we went back to our tent. Fast forward two months. The same buddy calls me late at night and tells me to turn on the TV to the news. I oblige. I see an old dude with a van. You see where this is headed, but at the time I didn't, so I got pissed at my friend for waking me up. And then I see the golden retriever, and it all clicks. What the fuck? That man's name was Gary Michael Hilton. He was convicted of at least four murders. He kidnapped and murdered a girl on Blood Mountain in Georgia, an older couple in Pisco, North Carolina, and a girl at that campsite not long after we left. Yes, the very same places he had been talking to us about. Obviously, we called the cops. They put us in touch with the FBI, the Florida Bureau of Investigation, and we get flown down to take investigators to the campsite and point out every spot we saw anything. Tell him exactly what he told us, and show them the places he described to us. I didn't find out until after the trial, but apparently they found what appeared to be partially destroyed human finger bones in an area near the site. I had to fly down again to testify. The call came out as a simple suspicious person in a large nursing home with not that many more details. Myself and a buddy showed up to find a woman waiting out front next to her vehicle. The vehicle was off, and she carried a baby with her, maybe three years old, but still with those baby angel cheeks. The administrator tells me that the woman in question, who I refer to as Tracy, is a contracted worker for them, a sort of nurse who comes in from time to time, to help out with the elderly patients. She shows up on her day off and starts talking to this elderly gentleman, Joe. Tracy places her baby in Joe's lap and wheels him out of the facility, Joe screaming the whole time. They stop her and she gets mad because they're holding her grandfather hostage and she just wants to take him for a walk. The only thing is, Joe is not related to Tracy and is a retired cop himself. Tracy then gets distracted, tries stealing medication, and scratches another nurse when they stop her. By all accounts, not six hours earlier, Tracy was an ordinary woman. She went to work without complaint, seemed happy, and then went home. No history of drug use, no history of mental illness. The facility was reluctant to pursue charges due to the sudden abrupt shift in her personality. Like, she'd been replaced with another woman who looked just like her, but was criminally insane. While speaking to her, Tracy seems normal. She tells me, in a very calm and obviously not crazy voice, what she's doing and why. She gives me all the information and doesn't cause any problems or give me any reason to take her into custody. Joe didn't want to press charges, and the facility declined as well. The only thing making it seem something was wrong was Tracy insisting Joe was her grandfather, which we proved he was not. My only other recourse was a sort of emergency custody order for mental health, but I had no reason to do so. Her son looked well cared for, so we elected to call for family to arrive. Her father showed up and confirmed that Tracy was okay. 
she didn't take drugs and had never complained about mental health or physical ailments that would lead us to believe something was wrong. I even spoke to a magistrate about securing charges to get her treated since she refused to do so on her own, but he declined right off. The only option we had was the father trying to get a custody order against her. He took a few minutes speaking to her before pulling me aside and saying, I can tell you that that woman may look like my daughter, but that is not my daughter. As this is happening, I hear the car door open and the doors lock. My stomach dropped, though I couldn't tell you why. Consider it a sixth sense all cops have or are issued after time spent on the force. Sometimes, someone sets up a trigger that you can't explain, and you better listen to it. Inside the car, Tracy's holding her bouncing little boy in her arms. I knock on the window and ask if I can talk some more. She refuses. I ask her if her father can hold the baby. She tells me, that's not my father. I try to negotiate while my supervisor, who witnessed the whole thing thankfully, tried the other doors. He took over talking to her while I positioned myself on the other side of the car and trying to open the door handles. Both of our warning flags were going off and we couldn't say why. She gave no reason and we had no cause. Then, Tracy says, You're just trying to take away my baby. She pulls the baby into her chest and the baby stops laughing. And the little jerks on its hands and feet tell me that it's not breathing. It took three swings of my baton to break the glass, all the while my supervisor is screaming at me to get in. I crawl across the broken glass and reach across the seat, pulling the baby's head from her arms. It lets out a bloody wail, and Tracy turns to look me in the face. I see the driver's side door open, and Tracy just fucking smiles at me. You're just trying to take my baby, you white devil. It felt like it happened in an instant. Tracy bares her teeth and bites the baby. I hear the baby screaming now in pure pain. I reach forward, wrapping my arms around her lower jaw and upper forehead, and pulled her off. And Tracy goes limp, and the grandfather takes the baby inside to be treated. He lived, but we never found his ear. I saw her later in court, after all the charges were dismissed, in lieu of lifetime commitment to a mental institution. All the life gone from her eyes, just like that night. The lights were on, but no one was home. I still can't explain how an otherwise healthy and vibrant person can go from zero to crazy like that. It haunts me to this day more than any ghost story I've ever heard. One sunny weekday afternoon, I had dirt biked up an old mining road. It gained a couple thousand feet from the valley floor towards one of the ridges of the Cascades. When the road gave out near the bottom of a high basin, I put on my backpack and started off cross-country toward the ridge. It was still heavily forested, old growth and old cut, fading in another thousand feet into those scraggly, wind-blown ones near the top. About twenty minutes in, and about half a mile up from me, near the tree line, I heard this weird thumping sound. It was very odd, so I stopped to listen carefully. 
It sounded like a big solid branch was being whacked against the solid tree. I use the term solid because the hits were powerful. One or both of the pieces of wood were hard and dry. The wood resonated and rang on impact, as dry wood will. I couldn't get over the power though. It sounded like someone was swinging a four-inch post. Weird, right? Well, it gets better. This someone sounded like they were trying to communicate. The thumping had a very complex and well-defined pattern. And here's the weirdest part. The thumping signal occasionally became very rapid, like what a drummer could do if they were noodling around with a stick, but I swear it sounded like a 4-inch pose was being treated as lightly as a drumstick. I listened for maybe 5 minutes, just fascinated with this sound, this code, and the power of it. Then, the drumming suddenly stopped, and I kind of woke up to the fear of this unknown thing out there. I had my pistol, I had my bear spray and my knife. I really only fear cougars, and even then, I figure they'll have a bad day trying to take me down. Still, the silence as I stared into the forest ahead seemed loaded, and I turned on my heels and left that valley. That place and that experience gave me chills, and that high valley won't see my shadow again. I've read stories about some of the native peoples around here having valleys that they just wouldn't go into. I can now easily understand how these legends get started. Some friends and I were doing some night fishing on the James River. We were sitting along the shoreline with a nice fire going, accompanied by the usual idle talk and a few beers, when suddenly everyone just stopped talking like a switch was flipped off. We were all staring across the river and felt as if someone or something was staring back. It was a very uneasy feeling, to which some of the group tried to shake off, with the typical macho humor, when suddenly, a blood-curdling sound erupted from the other shore that froze everyone in their tracks. This sound was unlike any other I had heard, and it made every hair on my body vibrate and tingle. The only way I can describe it is it sounded like a wild person with no language skills, being gutted alive. No words, just this high-pitched blood-curdling scream. Nobody moved or said a word. We all just sat there fixed in our stare, when just as suddenly, a second scream was let loose, with even more force than the first. By this time, several of us were sprinting to our trucks that were parked within 20 or 30 feet, and retrieving various firearms. We all sat there quietly, with our eyes fixed staring toward the opposite shore, watching the light from our fire reflecting off the rocks. Hours later, we packed it up and left, feeling very unsettled. We never did figure that one out. <laughs> 